All right, I'm feeling good, maybe I'm cocky. I've already had a better start than the first service when I threw my coffee on the floor as I was walking up to the stage. Thank you. So, in the fourth century, there's a guy named Augustine. He was famous. He had a city in Florida named after him, St. Augustine. And Augustine was a brilliant guy, an academician. He was a professor of rhetoric in Carthage and in, in Rome. And uh, his mom wanted him to become a Christian, and he had wanted no part of it whatsoever. Didn't believe it, didn't make any sense to him. And then one day, he went to hear Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, speak, and he did not go there so that he could hear a message about Jesus. He went there because he wanted to study his rhetorical skills, because Ambrose was a brilliant speaker. And so he went there, and something happened to him. He heard concepts that he didn't expect that somehow were different from what his mother had been telling him, and it began to resonate. What it did is it threw him into a place of turmoil, much like that song, where he was confused, trying to figure out the answers and, at some level, the questions. And he tells the story in, in a book called Confessions. He tells the story of his conversion, and he said there was a day where he was utterly confused, and he was really just troubled and trying to figure out his, his, his underpinnings, the pillars that, of his worldview had sort of been, had been pushed aside, and he said he heard, and he, he says it was either a young boy or a young girl's voice, I can't remember, I can't distinguish which, but singing over and over the words, take up and read, and he said, I thought this was odd, I had never heard a song sung by anyone where it said, take up and read, and so he saw a copy of one of Paul's letters, which is a, a book in the New Testament, the letter to the Romans, and he took it up and began to read it. And as he did so, he said he was pierced with the truth that there was a God out there who was calling him to himself. He turned his life to Christ, and as a result of that, has a city in Florida named after him. Now, as a result of that, is honestly one of the top five, top ten most influential thinkers in all of Christianity since the time of Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about me. I, as of yet, don't have any cities named after me, not in Florida nor anywhere else. However, when I was in France a few years ago, we were driving, true story, as if I'm like, false story, no, I was in France, true story, we're driving, and we see a sign, and it says, Marcy, not literally, our spelling, M-A-R-C-E-Y, Marcy Le Guev. It's a city, a town. It's not a city. It's a, it's a village-ish. It's very small. And Marcy Le Guev, which means Marcy the Strikers. And so it means either one of two things. Either they were really good attacking soccer players, or they caused a shutdown of some, labor, of, uh, some industry in France by having a strike. We don't know. However, that's the closest we can get to me having a city named after me. So all that's to say, I'm about to tell you a story about me. I don't have any cities named after me. I'm not as influential as Augustine. And yet, my story was relatively similar in some fashion. At the age of 17, I was in a bit of turmoil because I had some long-held beliefs about life, and I had thought I had settled some things, and God had no part, was not simply an, not an afterthought, was, had been excluded from consideration, not, not part of it. I, I had, much like Augustine with his mother, I had been to church, <laughs> Uh, there was no part of that that I wanted. It made no sense. It did not fit anywhere in. And then some things began to shake, and I began to question. And, and then one day I was in a, a doctor's office. And some of you have heard this story, but there was a, a Bible, and it written on it was, Take Me Home. 
And so nobody was singing. There was no little girl singing, take up and read, but literally written on it was take me home. And so I, I did. I picked it up and I stuffed it in my bag. This was a completely out of character moment for me. The idea that at that point or at any point I thought I would have picked up a Bible and taken it home with me, that would have been, a, that was a quaint notion. I couldn't imagine it happening. But there was enough turmoil in my life, interior, nobody knew it, interior, that I took it home. And I took it up and began to read it by myself in my bedroom at night. And I found something I didn't expect. I, I found a person who drew me like I had never been drawn before. And the turmoil began to accelerate and then subside. And that was the key chapter when I turned my life to Christ and have been in relationship with him for over 30 years now and am on my way to having a small town in France named after me. Thank you. <laughs> it's the Labor Day crowd. The jokes are just going to keep coming at you. Anyway, I tell you both those stories to tell you this. This is not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's intended for our consumption. And what's inside there can change our lives. We have this notion that the Bible is unreadable. Oh, it'd be so confusing. It's not that confusing. I had been to church a handful of times. I, I, you know, I didn't know anything at all about the Bible. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I picked it up and read it, and I understood the words of God talking to me. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's a book that is quite readable and understandable for us. Now, that's all fine. I tell you, it's understandable. But maybe that doesn't address another question, which the other question is, so what? <laughs> There's lots of books that are understandable that I don't read. I have, and some of you have given them to me. I've been given fine books by any number of people here and, and, and outside of here for me to read, and they are fine books. They are. They're good books. Some of them I've read. Many of them I haven't because there's a lot of them. And you tell me about a book, and I know it was a good book for you, and I, I just haven't gotten around to it. I'm reading two books now, and, and, and you know, one of them is by a, a, a guy who goes here who's a, a, a poet named Maury Creech, and it's, it's a wonderful book. And I tell you that, and maybe some of you will ask me afterwards, oh, I'd like to read this. And some of you will not. And you'll believe me that it's a good book, but you're not going to read it. I'm reading a book by a P.G. Woodhouse. It's a, an English humorist, and I tell you it's a very entertaining book, but you may not read that, so simply the fact that it's understandable, so what? Last week, I said this. Well, I quoted Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, where he said, generally speaking, if you want to master something, true mastery of anything takes about 10,000 hours. And, you know, these numbers are at some level arbitrary. It's not like 9,999, you're a, a doof, and then at 10,000, you become a master. But generally speaking, it seems to be that most people who master 
truly master something, become world-class at something, have devoted themselves extensively to it. And 10,000 hours appears to be sort of a magical number for that. Now, there are people who are true prodigies who, you know, in two hours they can play the piano. But for most of us mortals, mastery is a matter of doing something and putting the time and the effort into it. Now, the question I have for you is this. Let's say you want to become a master at something. If you had a piece of paper and a pen, which you may, and you were to write down, this is what I'd like to be world-class at. This is what I'd like to be really good at. And you, you would, I mean, Who knows what you would write down? Maybe you'd say, I want to be a master chef because you've seen the show. Or you say, I want to be a, a master whatever, accountant. I don't know what you want to be, but you want to be a master of something, something in your head. Can I suggest something to you? That if there was one thing that would be really good to master, that would be life. If I could be skillful, world-class, at handling failure and success equally well. If I could be world-class, a master at relationships, if I could be a master at loving people and of understanding who I was, if I could be a master at understanding who God was and how that affected and changed my world, if I could become a master at anything, wouldn't it be really good to be truly skillful at life? I submit to you that all the other mastery is details. This book was written for you to become a master at life to understand who God is, to understand who you are, and to understand how to live beautifully in the midst of a real world in which we are. It is not a book written in a vacuum. It was not written antiseptically, theoretically. It was written and injected to this world in which you and I live. And so what we're going to do over the next six weeks is we're going to explore one small book of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. It's really the second third of the Bible, written after Christ came. And it's uh, called 1 John. It's a letter that a guy named John wrote to to the churches of the time. And as we do so, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see a couple things. I want you to see understanding this book is not rocket science. I also want you to see that what's in here can change your life like nothing else can. So, here's the plan. Today, this week, I'm going to give you a big, broad overview of 1 John, and it's not a broad overview that it took me three years of seminary and four years of PhD to figure out. It's a broad overview that I got by reading it. And then the next five weeks, as we go from that broad overview, you're going to look at five very specific themes that John brings through, because again, John, and I'm going to tell you who he is in a minute, John is writing to a particular audience dealing with real-life issues, and he's trying to help them to understand some core concepts about how God wants them to live. He's trying to help them to understand what it looks like to see your life transformed. What responsibility do I have in that? He's trying to help them to understand some of the dangers of the world around them and some of the things that can pull them away from what they love the most. He's trying to help them to understand what love love looks like in the midst of a place that can be fearful. Intensely practical book for our lives. 
Today we'll look at the big sweep, the book as a whole. Okay, now John, arguably, is uh, Jesus' closest friend while on earth. He, uh, he was pictured several times in the Bible as being an intimate friend of Jesus while on earth. And one picture of him is uh, he's, he's at a dinner and he's leaning on Jesus. They're sitting next to each other in conversation. He's referred to as the one that Jesus loves. And in the, in the group of people who followed Jesus, there was 120-ish a group, and there was a group of 12. We know them, the, the disciples. And then there were three. And John was in that three. And John writes, having known Jesus, but he writes with this, at this point, with a very, very specific bent. There's a verse right in the beginning of, the, of, of 1 John, verse 2, and it's that these two words have struck me. And it's this, life appeared. John's view is this. Not, I met this guy, and he's got some interesting thoughts about life. Really, in the grand scheme of things that you're looking at in your life, you might want to consider this. He doesn't write and say, you know, there's a bunch of relational gurus out there, but this guy is pretty good. Now try what you want, and and maybe mix this in with some of the things you think. Okay, lately I've become minorly obsessed with how I eat, trying not to become majorly. I'm not good at moderation. It's not a strength. I know this. And so, but the truth is, the thing that I've, I've learned about nutrition and the things I'm trying to do in eating, that it's not, I, I'm not going to look at you and say, this is it, you must do this. It's, it's a way, among other ways, there are exercise programs that do a certain thing, and there's a, a series of them that probably work if they follow some basic principles, but there's not a thing in that. You understand when John writes, he writes not to say, here's a thought. Hey, in your spare time, while you're perusing other things, if you get a chance, I got some good teaching for you, you should consider this. Now, we'd prefer that, quite honestly. Most of us would prefer our, our truth delivered that way. Sort of put on a buffet and we'll go, I'll get a little of that. And a little, oh, I think I have too much of that. I'm going to put that away. A little of that, I'll just pick and choose. John speaks in black and white because life appeared. He said something has happened that's game-changing, altering, life-altering for everyone. That's what we saw. That's what we're talking about. And so what I'm going to go with you this morning is three things that John pictures, a sort of a, a superstructure for the book of First John, which really you could say is a superstructure for the, the Bible as a whole. And he will, he will paint a black and white picture and call us to very specific ways of thinking and action because of that. There's no beating around the bush. Here's the big sweep of First John. First of all, John would say that there is a dark side to life. I know you're shocked to hear us say that, but John would say there's a dark side to life. And I'm going to read to you from First John chapter 2, and I could, I could get this from really any chapter of First John, but we're just gonna, I'm just going to show you in First John 2, 2 this picture that John gives of life. He says this, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, and that command is love one another. 
Yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in, in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. You begin to see the contrast he sets. The darkness is passing, the true light is shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. Do you see the extremes that he uses? Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And I'm going to jump over a section we're going to come back to later. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for everything in the world. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, those who oppose Christ, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. I think I'm dark. John's dark. I mean, look at the categories. If you don't do this, you're in darkness. Boom, period. Don't love your brother, you're in darkness. Hate your somebody, you're in darkness. You do love, you're in light. Don't love anything in the world. Nothing. Because those things will destroy you and take you away from what really matters. John writes as if, quaint notion, as if this isn't a game as if our life actually matters, as if there are things at stake. He writes as if this message is critically important for us. And he says, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that there is a dark side to life. And he says it so often, he keeps mingling it through the teaching that so often you go like, okay, John, I got it. Why are you giving me this darkness? Here's why. I told you, I think, I, I never had a good memory, and it's gotten worse. I think I told this. I read The Road a short time back, a, a book by Carmack McCarthy, and, and I read it in two and a half hours one night and sat there in a chair in my living room at 1230 and went almost hyperventilating. Seriously, just overwhelmed by the sense of dread from the book. And I was trying to put my finger on what did I feel? Terror is what I felt. Because it, even in the midst of some of the poignancy and the beauty of the book, and it's, it's brilliantly written, but even in the midst of that, there was, I, I felt like I looked over the edge of something and there wasn't a bottom. And then it reminded me, it was a visceral feeling of what I felt like in the months before I became a Christian, where I realized that there were actually things to be afraid of. That life wasn't necessarily destined to always go in my favor. That life was difficult, potentially brutally difficult. I sucked my breath in and realized reminding myself of what I believe was true, and that was a reality, but not the final reality for me. But it's important, slash critical, 
to understand before we can really experience what God wants for us, it's important to know that there are actually things to be afraid of. Because when we're afraid of things, when things terrify us, when we worry about things, this is what we really want to do. We like to ignore them. We like to pretend they're not there. Deny, distract, evade, shift, bob and move. You know, rope-a-dope. They'll not touch me. Nothing to be afraid of. What? Me worry? No fear. I teach public speaking. I love to teach public speaking. I really do. Love everything about it. But one of the things I love, because I teach introductory public speaking, is I love the first week. Because students walk in and they are terrified. Abject terror. I know at some point they're hoping. Some of them are hoping it's on public speaking, but maybe he won't make me speak. (laughs) Maybe we're just going to study people who speak. (laughs) It is college after all, so maybe we'll just study speakers. I let them know really early on, you're going to speak. I say, there's an upside and there's a downside to my class. The upside is, I don't give a lot of homework. The downside is, you're going to speak in front of other people who are going to evaluate you. And then, like class four, we do speech anxiety. I love teaching speech anxiety, because this is what I do. I say, okay, I'm going to write here on the board all the things you're afraid of. And, and we're going to come up with some new ones. There are things that you're afraid of, and that somebody else is afraid of. You didn't know their fears, and they're all real. And so we're going to have this big board filled of the, all the things you should, be, you should be afraid of when you speak. And then we're not done. And then I go to symptoms. I say, okay, here's the things you're afraid of. Here's what happens when you get up front and you have speech anxiety. And every year somebody comes up with something I hadn't thought of yet. Last year somebody said, well, I'm a, so I, I could faint right in front of people. I said, well, nobody's going to faint. That's really probably not happening. She goes, no, I did it. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying that's odd. That's, and then this year somebody said, I'm afraid, I'll throw up. This is possible. Now, why do I show all this to him, to them? Because when you see the fears, when you actually face them, then you have the possibility of dealing with them. To avoid them doesn't make them go away. It just makes you cope and shift and dodge. When you face them, you can actually deal with them. So, here's what John does. John says, it's a dark world out there, people. But that's not the end of the story. Middle section. Life appeared. In the midst of a world where there's actually things to be afraid of, where you could list them. I could go on a board. We could list them. They would be real. In the midst of that, life appeared. And the game has been changed. And now I'm going to read to you two verses, two different verses from 1 John 2. And again, I could read uh, any number of different verses in 1 John. I'm just going to read these. We're just going to stay in chapter 2 today. And this is what it says. He has just said, in, in typical John fashion, if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. Not like, you might be mistaken, you're a liar. You got this right? If you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. But then he says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, right here in one of these words is the reason why we go, it's rocket science. Atoning 
Who knows what this means? Google. Google knows what atoning means. This is what you do. Go to Google, go, atoning. There it is. To make amends. To make reparations. To make things right. It's not rocket science. What the verses say is that it can be a dark world, but something has happened. There is someone who came to make things right. To repair the damage. To atone. And now, we don't have to live in fear. See, at the end of the book, and we'll talk about this more next week, John will say this, perfect love casts out fear. He doesn't say, there's, no, there's nothing to be afraid of. He says, perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And in the love of God, there's not punishment. There's grace and there's power. The game's been changed. The rules have altered. Life has appeared to make things right. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, for John, it makes him want to break into music. I'm actually not kidding. We're going to look at the next section. What John says is there, because of this, because it's a dark world, but someone has come in order to write our lives that now we can have a vivid hope. Not, you can think a little better about your life. You don't need to be quite so afraid. No, he's, you can have a vivid, crystalline, pristine hope that can't be shaken or broken. And so he writes this, and this is the section I jumped over in, in verses 12 through 15, 14. And again, this is the sort of thing, if you look in, 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 if you have a Bible, likely it's broken down like into verses. And you look at that and go, I don't know what he's talking about. He keeps repeating himself and it's a song. You see, this, is, this book is written at a time when most people most people didn't read. Some did, but most didn't. And so most people held the things they needed to know through song and through story because the concepts were repeated. And here is one of these. We believe it's a, a song that was sung to remind people about core truths to give them hope. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven and accounted his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I mean, really, you look at that, and what, is, what does he say? In this song, what is he saying? I'm reminding you in the midst of this world, in the midst of the things that trouble, I'm reminding you that some things have happened because life, the actual thing, life has appeared in flesh. This is what's happened. Your sins are gone. For those who believe in Jesus, there's no guilt in your life anymore. You're forgiven through and through. Is not one of the great... Uh, maybe it's just me. You can tell me later. 
Is not one of the great fears in life we're going to be exposed, caught up short for what we've done and who we are. I write to you, dear children, because you won't be exposed. It's all been seen. Your darkest moments, your worst hours, I've seen them and you're forgiven. Because a great, strong victory has happened. The Son of God has come to earth and he paid for your sin. I write to you, fathers and mothers, because you've known him from the begin- who is from the beginning. I remind you that not only are your sins are forgiven, it's not a barren forgiveness, but you are now connected to the one who is from the beginning, who has always been, to the source of life for whom you were made. One of the things that Augustine realized when he made his confession is this. He said, God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so John writes, and he says, in the midst of a world that can be fearful, I want you to know that the place of your heart's rest has been attained, that you now know him who is from the beginning, the source of your life, the source of your heart, the source of your soul. And then he says, I write to you, because these two things are true, you are now strong. Truth lives in you. And you can overcome the evil one and you can overcome the evil in your life. I write to you because victory is now possible. He does not write an ambiguous sort of fine-tuning of life. He says there is vivid hope. You do not need to be defeated by the things that have held you back in your life. You are not destined for that. Do you you see the sweep? For me, it's just so important that it is really dark. See, what we want to do, if we want to feel better about our lives, what we try to do is we try to sort of mitigate some of the darkness. It's not really so bad, and and then we level how good we're going to get. So all of life is sort of lived in here. And what John says in the Bible is, no, it's really down here. (laughs) Seriously, it's really bad. (laughs) But this is your destiny. Your destiny is to be remade in glory. In Psalm 121, a verse that has struck me of late as I've looked at some of the things that I'm actually afraid of. Psalm 121, if the Lord had not been on our side, if, 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 if God had not been on our side, the waves would have engulfed me, period. But he is. It was like a revelation. Oh my goodness, but he is. And so they don't need to engulf me. And in fact, he won't let them. A few years ago, Nan started to pray Psalm 21 for our kids. And this morning I prayed it for our kids. Because it pictures, it pictures the glory of the human. I know I don't say the age. It pictures the glory of the person. And the glory of the person is that they become fully alive in God. And so the beauty of the soul reflects and shows the creator who made her or who made him. The glory of God is a man, is a woman fully alive. And this is what you are called to. 
How about mastering that? God sent his son to die for you, to make you alive. To call you to a way of life far beyond what you could have conceived or achieved on your own. And then he wrote select words designed to guide you into a relationship with him and designed to guide, designed to guide you to live well. And he put them in a book. Actually, we put them in a book. We corralled them. Take up and read. And here are words of life. And here's the possibility of mastering things that too often master us. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge is varied. It depends on where you are. I don't know where you are. I know where you're seated, but metaphysically, I have no idea where you are. I don't know what your experience is with the Bible. I don't. Some of you, it is uh, literally Greek to you, and you have no idea. When I first picked up a Bible, I had no idea it was in there, really. I knew it was a Bible. I am in America, after all. I knew it was a Bible. I picked it up and I read, and I read about Jesus because I knew he was an important character in this whole thing. Some of you have never read the Bible. For you, it's, a, it's an ornament. You know, it sits in the family room, in the front of a church. I'm going to challenge you. If you don't have a Bible, take one. Here's one of the things that's not rocket science. You can't read the Bible if you don't have a Bible. Here's the Bible. They're back there in those cubbies right there between the two kiosks. Take one with you. Take two with you. Put one in your book bag and one in your home. Read 1 John. Just, just during this series, six weeks, read it one time. It's not very long. Read it one time. For some of you, I want to challenge you on the far extreme, and then all of you are somewhere in the middle. Some of you begin to memorize large sections of 1 John because you have read the Bible a lot, at least at times in your life. I've got all sorts of vague and obscure details in my head. Seriously. I, can remember, I can't remember what I was supposed to do yesterday, but I can remember vague details about songs, movies, and stories from the 1980s. I think it would be better if what was stuck in my head is perfect love casts out fear. If the Lord had not been on our side, the waves would have engulfed me. I think it would be better if that was stuck in my head. And so for some of you, you're at the place where you need to take up and memorize. Not, not for memorization's sake, so that truth that can alter your life is readily accessible in your head and in your heart. I don't know where you are. I know this is for you. Life has appeared. Take up and read. It'll change everything. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us into places that we've not yet seen or imagined? I, I pray for each one of us in the room that you would, by your spirit, because you were just so intensely personal, even as you reached the whole world, I pray you'd speak to each one of us and awaken our hearts much like you awakened Augustine. To take up and read. To let the words that you carefully preserve for us come to our life and come to our mind and come to our heart. We pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen. If you are here new or new-ish, and uh, you want some more information, whether it's about how do I understand this Bible. If you don't know how to understand the Bible, I'm going to talk to you about some things we're going to be doing at the end of the service. I'm going to talk about some things that are coming up. But you can also come to me and go, what do I do? How do I start? I will tell you how to start.